0: To Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and I don't know if the audio sounds different on your end, but I'm definitely recording in a different space. And I feel like there's an echo, but maybe not. I'm not really entirely sure, but I'm sitting in my new apartment actually right now. um, And I just can't believe this just feels so right. Me sitting here recording, you know, in this new space that I'm just so in love with that I can't wait to reveal to you guys very soon, tell you guys all the details. I will not be sparing Well, I'll be sparing some, but you know, I'll be sharing as much as I want to because as you'll hear later in the episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about this concept or my latest ism. You guys know I love my isms and my like, you know, psychological theories and all those things and I recently discovered a new ism called essentialism and I can't wait to share with you guys more about that because it kind of surrounds or revolves around the idea of being a bit more selective with things and the big big one the big thing that I'm going to be more selective about in coming months coming years just like you know in the considerable future is with the things that I share because as much as I love being super transparent and honest about things that are difficult to be honest about um, which is what I love doing I feel like there's a way to do that while still preserving some things you know that are just special to me that The whole world does not need to see and know about and so anyway long story short I will be sharing more details about my move about just moving forward you know what my space looks like you know just a lot of things all those like things that I want to share that I'm excited to talk about will be coming soon I'm I think filming a video on Friday about the new place and stuff like that. I think I'll probably post it around like Saturday or maybe on Monday, who knows. Um, And then you guys will know all the deets that I wanna share. So yeah, anyway, we are in the new space, Um, getting used to the acoustics here. It's a bit different layout in the sense that like I... I'm not um, sitting at my tiny little desk in the corner by the window. Um, I actually have a larger desk in this place and I could like spread out all my notes. Like I can't believe it. I can see all my notes in front of me. I don't have to like shuffle through them and like balance my glass of wine on the edge of my desk. Like that's what I was dealing with before. So I'm feeling very lucky right now that I can like have everything spread out. I actually got a dining room table this time around. So instead of a desk, like a, a, you know, a typical desk, it's actually a dining room table because I found that no desk really was the right size for all of the activities that I do at my desk. So I have a dining room table. Anyway, so all my notes are spread out in front of me and I just have so much to talk to you guys about today or uh, you know, kind of unpack with you all because a lot has happened since we last spoke. Like if you told me last week when I was recording our last podcast episode that Taylor Swift was about to drop a surprise album in the alternative category that sounds so much like her old music that I love so much, I would just, I don't know what I would do or say. I probably would say you were crazy because I just did not see it coming. I don't think a lot of us saw it coming. I have always been a Taylor Swift fan, I guess. I hate using the word fan, but I guess, you know, I've been a supporter of hers. I do love her music. I like how I... I just like her as a person. I feel like she's misunderstood in a lot of ways. And I just, you know, there's been things coming out in even more recent months and years that have just solidified my opinion as far as like she is just one of those people that the media and a lot of people, even in like my friend group, tries to paint as like this villain. And I just don't see her like that at all. I think her music really speaks volumes to who she is. And this new album, Folklore, is No exception to that. I think every song on this album is just a work of art, and I can't believe she wrote the entire thing slash produced it or whatever goes into making an album during quarantine. Like I just, I knew there was going to be a lot of good things to come out of quarantine, but I did not know those things would come from Taylor Swift. And I am pleasantly surprised. There are so many amazing songs in the album. I would say my favorite song on Folklore is Invisible String. And I like to think that this album and this song specifically just like it really was made for me. <laughs> like in this phase of my life, I was just talking on my last episode, you guys know, about just how kind of, you know, I don't really know where I am right now, what I'm doing. Like I'm kind of in this weird, uh, just period of time, kind of like a, uh, just, I don't know. I'm, I feel like kind of suspended right now in midair and I'm trying to figure out my next move type of thing. And you know, Invisible String kind of just, it made me feel like, oh, you know, like my person, every single little move I make, like even me moving apartments has gotten me somehow closer to my person someday slash where I'm meant to end up. And like all these things are just, oh my God, that song just like gets me. So that is my favorite song on the album, but I was equally intrigued slash just like very interested in, The Last Great American Dynasty, Betty, all the songs that are clearly about this one woman, Rebecca Harkness, and I have since fallen into a total black hole researching this woman, Rebecca Harkness, and everything about her, everything that's ever been written about her, I have fallen into a deep, dark hole reading, and... There's a few songs on the album that are, you can kind of tell after listening to it a million times like I have, are linked together and Taylor even said before she released the album that three of the songs were kind of involved, like a love triangle from three different perspectives and I'm still trying to figure out who James is because this song called Betty, which is presumably about Rebecca, was written or spoken from this guy or girl I don't know James perspective and there's a couple names actually in the songs James and Inez which are actually the names of Blake Lively's children apparently I know James is Blake Lively's daughter's name but I didn't know Inez maybe it is and I just like didn't I think she's a son doesn't she I don't freaking know anyway that was a theory that I saw on Twitter but Basically, three songs. There's like a love triangle situation um, told kind of from different perspectives. Um, August is told from the other woman's perspective or point of view. And then Cardigan, I believe, is also from in the love triangle situation. And then there's the song The Great American or The Last Great American Dynasty, my apologies, which is entirely about Rebecca and her life and her antics and her rebellious streak and all the things. Um, and basically, Rebecca used to own Taylor Swift's Rhode Island house before she acquired it or bought it for $17 million in cash, which is crazy. So we're going to talk about Rebecca today. I have a few things that I, I'm i not just sharing her story. I do have some other things I want to kind of tie it to in true Katie fashion of sharing people's stories on here. They all have to do with something Um, and I just overall I'm just intrigued by her story and people naturally when they heard about this you know conspiracy theory or just the fact that this was all linked to this one woman people were DMing me off the wazoo um, saying can you talk about Rebecca Harkness in an episode so here I am doing it listening to you guys Uh, so yeah Rebecca Harkness let's get into her story first and then we'll just you know go on from there as we typically do so Rebecca Harkness aka Betty which the song Betty is written about. Um, I I believe it was kind of like a fictional take. I think a lot of what Taylor did here was she kind of spun this true story into something that she could kind of tell multiple perspectives from, um, even if they didn't truly exist, which I love when authors do that. I read this uh, book called Park Avenue Summer which I think I've recommended to a million of you guys. So if you haven't read it, definitely get your hands on it because I've, I've recommended it to just everyone and everyone loves it. So Park Avenue Summer, I don't remember who it's written by actually, but I remember the, the book cover in my head. It's like black and white and has a little bit of pink on it. Anyway, Park Avenue Summer was written about Helen Gurley Brown, who is the uh, editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan as it kind of turned over into something a little bit raunchier back in, or it's not like raunchy by any means, but you know, involving sex and things people don't talk about and whatever back in, I don't know what time period, probably like the fifties or so, or maybe just right around there. And the, the book park Avenue summer is told from the perspective of her assistant, her fictional assistant that didn't actually exist but just for the sake of telling the story, you know? So I think Taylor might have done that with some of these songs, you know, making, inventing these characters to kind of go along with Rebecca's true story. So anyway, that's just my theory. Um, But I want to talk about the true story of Rebecca Harkness today. So she was born in 1915 in St. Louis, Missouri. um, And she was born very wealthy in the sense that her parents were both very wealthy. Her dad, um, I believe he was like in some sort of, he was a stockbroker or something like that, doesn't really matter. He was a tyrant, not a good guy. Her mom was very involved in the social scene, so she really took a step back in motherhood and she was kind of left to be raised by her nannies. Um, There's this one book about her, someone did some intense research on her life and apparently one of the nannies was hired because she used to work in an insane asylum and the parents thought that she'd be really great at raising their children, which is a little bit crazy. Anyway, so she was raised kind of in a a way where she didn't really feel extremely loved um, by her parents. And she went off to a finishing school after when she was a certain age, um, alongside a lot of other prominent families. And she wrote in her journal that in her life, she hopes to, quote, do everything bad which I thought was very interesting and very telling as far as where she goes in life. I've said before on the podcast, I think that a lot of how we are as adults, how we handle situations, just how we are as a whole, is really just intrinsically linked to how we were as children and just what happened to us as children. So this goes, it doesn't really come as a shock, honestly, that she ends up being this, you know, rebellious character later in her life. So she was basically known for doing crazy shit. I literally verbatim wrote that in my notes. Known for doing crazy shit. She formed a group called The Bitch Pack. I believe in her probably late 20s, early 30s. Um, She had four marriages. I'm going to get into that. But she formed this group. She was kind of like the Regina George of her group, I guess. But I don't want to call her Regina George because I think she was a little bit more intelligent than Regina George. But Anyway, it was a subculture group of debutantes, so younger women, who enjoyed disrupting social events, including lacing the punch at her sister's debutante ball with mineral oil, performing a strip tease at dinner, and filling her fish tank with scotch. There's a lot of other things that I'm gonna get into, but those are just some of the top line items. She had four marriages in her life. Um, one to, I, I don't really remember, if, I think he was a photographer or something, her first husband, not really as noteworthy. Um, they were together for a bit, they had a couple of children. She was a pretty absent mother to her few children that she had throughout her four marriages. Um, in her first marriage, she actually, I, I believe it was like in the newspaper, I saw this like old clipping uh, where she said, that she got married because there really wasn't anything else to do or there wasn't much else to do or something like that than to get married. So she got married. um, She divorced her husband or they divorced. I don't really know what happened there. Um, When she was around, I think, in her mid-30s, and that's when she met her second husband. (laughs) This is like the, the beginning of the story because William Hale Harkness had money, this guy. He actually passed away seven years into their marriage due to heart failure or something of that nature, And apparently they were in love. They actually wrote a song together and just were known to have a great time together. I don't know if that's love, but yeah, um, that's all we really know about their marriage, but... They did throw crazy parties, that we really do know. That was her second marriage. She had two other marriages after that, later down the line to two doctors. Both of them didn't work out. When the couple, so William Hale Harkness, and he went by Bill, and Bill and Betty, when they were married, and even after he died, they threw these crazy parties at now Taylor Swift's home, The Holiday House. And you guys will know if you listen to the song, she talks about the holiday house in detail, but some little details I didn't know from the music, it had eight kitchens and 21 bathrooms. What is the point of 21 bathrooms? Eight kitchens. Okay, like, so are we talking like eight stoves, eight ovens? Like, I just can't imagine the electricity it takes to run all of that and just the sheer magnitude of just like how large this place must be to have eight kitchens and 21 bathrooms anyway so they threw crazy parties at this mansion and invited a bunch of different high up their guests. I wish we knew more in terms of what the guest list looked like, but from what we know from researching, Andy Warhol was there, J.D. Salinger, Salvador Dali, and in one of the songs on Taylor's album, she mentions that Betty would lose, quote, lose card game bets with Dali, so Salvador Dali, and who was a surrealist artist, and we don't know if the card game bets actually happened, because that could just be, you know, a piece of the song or the story, but uh, there was a historical transaction where Betty purchased uh, Salvador Dali's 1965 The Chalice of Life which was a butterfly decorated vessel made of gold, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, the whole nine yards that retailed for $250,000 and the chalice actually became her urn when she died um, in 1982 at the age of 67. And apparently there's like a whole other story surrounding that, that her whole body, her, all of her remains didn't fit in the urn. So her daughter, one of her remaining children, carried the rest of her ashes away in a supermarket like plastic grocery bag like the the remains that didn't fit in the urn so that's a whole nother story but yeah so she just had wild parties every weekend the people in the area that lived around rhode island Just really hated her, honestly, because of these crazy parties, because they had nothing else to do but to shit on her, basically. So she threw these insane parties where she would fill the pool with champagne. She would, uh, you know, she even, (laughs) side note, when she was on a cruise one time, she got kicked off of the cruise for swimming naked. And she also did things like, you know, feuded with her neighbors that were bitchy neighbors and she dyed her neighbor's cat green. Um, If you hear the song, Taylor actually says that she dyes the neighbor's dog green and I think it's because she loves cats so much she just like can't even say it in her song that this woman dyed a cat green. Anyway, the lyrics from the songs really do draw so many parallels between Betty and Taylor and just like how similar their lives were are slash were in the sense that people really don't understand them slash you know they had a marvelous time ruining everything you know because I feel like with Taylor it's like she can really quote do nothing right it's like no matter what she does people paint her to be this type of person and she really can't run from these stereotypes and these just other celebrities pinning her down and just all of this the drama that just follows her and I, I honestly feel bad that that Is the case. I feel like when you get to a certain level of fame, it's probably just inescapable. But she says in The Last Great American Dynasty, um, quote, Who knows if I never showed up, what could have been? There goes the loudest woman this town has ever seen. I had a marvelous time ruining everything. So she basically said that. Yeah, her and Betty were one and the same in the sense that, you know, they're the loudest women this town has ever seen. Because when when Taylor actually had moved to Holiday House in 2013, and through all her crazy you know, July 4th parties with the Victoria's Secret Angels and Tom Hiddles, whatever his fucking last name is, that her ex-boyfriend, and then, you know, Blake Lively, Ryan Reynolds, just, like, all those people, Carly Kloss, etc. cetera. Um, and she, like, hosted all of these celebrities very similarly to how Betty had hosted a ton of celebrities, and uh, the governor of Rhode Island even proposed a tax on second homes worth more than a million dollars because people were so just like turned off by how much, you know, the paparazzi were coming by to Taylor's house and just kind of disrupting the local public beach that was near her house or is near her house, and they proposed this tax that was kind of nicknamed the Taylor Swift tax that never passed, but just crazy how much of a stir this caused, like her moving there, and same thing with Betty being there, like all the neighbors back then caused a stir, it's just very crazy the parallels uh, between these two women, these two crazy women, you know, and so yeah, that's kind of Rebecca's story and how it relates to Taylor, I think uh, just, it's crazy because I feel with every album that Taylor puts out, you know, she shares a lot, she shares a lot of very intimate details about her ex-boyfriends and her love life and things, and I feel like people have given her shit for it in the past because she, you know, careful, you know, with dating her because she'll write a song about you, like that sort of thing, but I feel like it's really crazy, I, I even read this quote once where it's like, truly private people will, you know, lead you to believe you know so much about their lives, when you really don't, but just the way that they paint the picture, you think you know a lot more than you actually do. And I feel like with Taylor, she is just the mastermind of doing exactly that. I feel with every album, we feel like we know more about her. And, you know, in truth, we do know a lot more about her with every album or just more details about her life, but we really only know what she wants us to know, which I think is just, Mind boggling to me, and it's something that you know, myself being someone that shares a lot on the internet, I really strive to be the same in the sense that, like, I share a lot of things that will ultimately hopefully help people, slash, make me someone where you guys can feel like you're my friend because that's what I want, but still preserve certain things that are just for me and just you know, sacred little special details that I'll never tell anyone. And yeah, that just kind of leads me to my next point of oversharing can be bad for mental health sharing too much giving too much of a an inside look into our lives to people that follow us you know even as someone who doesn't or someone who doesn't have a platform like I do that is just posting a ton of things on their Instagram story or posting a lot of just things on online in general even sharing a lot of details of their lives with people that they barely know, just, you know, over drinks or whatever. It's like oversharing can sometimes lead you down a path of no return slash just sadness, I think. I think that there sometimes is a beauty, or I just think there is a beauty, in keeping some things to yourself. And I am learning that over the years that there are just some things that become or just remain so special because Only I know about them or only like myself and someone else that's involved knows. And it just is so much more special that way. And I feel the internet has kind of encouraged us or just social media platforms in general have encouraged us to constantly be sharing our story or like tell us about your day, give us a status update, show us, you know, your story from today and every other day. And it's just like, why? Like what's the point or why does everyone and their mother need to know what I ate for breakfast this morning? It's so interesting to me because I feel like if you told someone in past years, you know, that average people like you and me, not major celebrities were kind of tasked with sharing about their lives to a public forum or a you know mostly public forum, even if you're private on social media, it just still feels pretty public. It's just crazy. You know, we're expected to share every, you know, our relationship updates and, you know, people we're seeing or like just who we got lunch with. And it's just so like take taking a step back and kind of You know, seeing it from a lens or just a perspective of someone who doesn't live in this time period, who maybe lives in a previous time where this just wasn't a thing, it just becomes. You just sit here and you're just like, wait, why? Why do we do that? (laughs) Why do we like open ourselves up for all of this scrutiny? Like, what's the point? And I think that there is a beautiful element of sharing your life and kind of getting on an even playing field with people you might not even know and just kind of being like, wow, like we all can come together and bond over vulnerability and things like that. But I also feel like it's something that can hurt you over time. And it has certainly hurt me in small ways over the past few months and years of just me kind of opening myself up and sharing a lot of things and then having people kind of use them, against me in a way where I feel like I just should never have said anything and I'm it's just a constant battle with like how much I want to share and if I even feel that sharing is beneficial to anyone because you know I've even had people DM me in past months saying that you know seeing my social media content sometimes makes them feel resentment towards me or just anger that I get to experience certain things that they don't and you know that just goes back to the whole comparison on social media and how that can't be good for you but then you ask yourself why do we do it? And I think ultimately, it just it's fun to see what other people are up to, you know? And it's fun to get inspiration from people that we really look up to or we really look at and think, wow, I really love their style or I love how they decorated their home or things like that. And I've definitely, I was talking to my friends yesterday about this, I've definitely shifted my social media following a bit in a sense of unfollowing people that I don't feel any sort of just when I'm looking at their content or I'm seeing what they're up to, I don't feel inspired. I don't feel at all positively about it. I If I feel mostly resentment or jealousy or all of these, you know, I tend to want to unfollow them just because I don't want that unnecessary energy in my life because it makes me kind of turn into a nasty person and I don't like myself when I... Slip into those moods. And so, you know, I've always encouraged anyone like, if you need to unfollow me because it makes you feel some type of way, do it because ultimately you are in charge of what you see on social media. And I think it should, what you see should challenge your thinking, you know, socially or just with certain political issues or things. Like, I think it should challenge you with certain things, but it should also not make you slide into depression. Like, you should not feel upset over it. And so, if that means pulling back from social media and not sharing as much, I think that if it's better for your mental health, you should do that. And for me, I've kind of pulled back a little bit in terms of how much I'm sharing or maybe not how much, but just at the speed In which I'm sharing I feel a lot of my sharing has been super instant like as soon as it happens to me I'm sharing it with you guys and right now like I just you know initiated a whole move and didn't really share a ton of details yet and it feels kind of nice to know that I can get settled and just kind of feel it out and do my own thing and not have a million people watching my every move and It's kind of nice, I don't know. I feel like I've just had to come up with a healthy balance with social media, something that previous generations never had to do. So I think all of us should really cut ourselves some slack because we don't really, we've never experienced anything kind of like this, you know? Like I just even, I can't imagine what life would be like if I, I never even had a MySpace. It was kind of a few years before my time where I just was not old enough to have one. And I just, even just early social media was just such a shock to human existence and it's just I can't get over it anyway so yeah oversharing can be bad for mental health I think you need to come up with a healthy balance I think I need to come up with a healthy balance and you know if something happens to you that's even just so great you don't need to share it you know you can hold it close to your heart and it can be so special and you don't I saw this social media post the other day ironically um, that you don't need to announce every success you don't need to announce every failure I think the key word is announce and actually I want to read the full post because it has a lot of other things I have it screenshotted on my phone okay it says 15 you don't have to's just for you and it's by Adrian Michael You don't have to announce your healing, you don't have to announce your resting, you don't have to announce your loving, you don't have to announce your crying, you don't have to announce your hurting, your giving, your caring, your working, your scattering, your worrying, your anxietying, your craving, your wondering, your stopping, your anything. And I just thought that was so like just what I needed to hear in that given moment because you don't always have to announce everything that happens to you. Even if you do a lot of that for a living, aka me, I feel like you need to find a balance because otherwise it will consume you. And I think Taylor has found her balance because this entire album wasn't even about her, which I think is so cool. Like she wrote these songs about people she's never met. Like that takes some freaking talent, okay? And she like wove a whole story together out of it. Anyway, so I do want to talk a little bit about essentialism because I think it really does relate to the direction we're going in. So I want to kind of debunk that with you guys. I learned about essentialism on a Skillshare class. I've taken a bunch of Skillshare classes, you guys know, and there's a one on essentialism. So I will just unpack that for you guys right now. Taking a quick break in this episode to introduce a sponsor. This episode of Thick and Thin is sponsored by GladSkin and let me tell you a little bit about them. So I personally don't know about you guys, but I love good news in my life. And earlier this year, I made a YouTube video where I opened up about my biggest insecurities. It was super difficult for me to film, but I felt like it would really help so many people. And it really did. And the video was actually all about my struggles with eczema, which has bugged me for years. I've had the most horrendous, just painful eczema on my hands, on my arms, on my face, under my eyes, just really in various parts of my body and it's been a massive insecurity of mine. I've had to cover up my body with clothing and just different accessories, just being so fearful that people would see my eczema and not to mention it was super uncomfortable. And I discovered Gladskin Eczema Cream about like Six months ago, I think now, and it's really changed my life. Glad skin scientists actually found that nearly all people with eczema have a bacterial imbalance in their skin, meaning their skin's microbiome is just out of whack. And Gladskin eczema cream with Microbalance balance is so much more than just another moisturizer on the shelf. It works by rebalancing your skin's microbiome and providing relief from that itchy redness situation that I just I know so well because I've experienced it my whole life with eczema and I I noticed a huge transformation in my skin after only two days of using it. It's just amazing how quickly and efficiently it works. Um, it's a really unique product and I've noticed so much change in my skin. I use it twice a day or more than that sometimes. And it's just really unique. It's um, already been a proven solution for eczema relief in Europe for five years, and it just became available in the US this year. Wish I knew about it sooner. It's different from steroids and traditional over-the-counter moisturizers because they don't rebalance the skin's microbiome. What's worse, they actually contain preservatives, which kills all the bacteria, even the good bacteria that's needed for healthy skin. So I like to say that GladSkin works smarter, not harder, making it safe for everyone, even little babies as young as three months old. You just apply it twice a day, daily, even on sensitive areas like eyelids. I get it super bad right underneath my eyes and it's a really sensitive area and I don't find that it really irritates my skin at all. It doesn't at all, I have very sensitive skin. And even when your skin feels fine or you have no flare-ups, it's good just to use as a moisturizer. Um, It can be used proactively to keep eczema under control and you can't overuse it, that's not a thing. So it's free of steroids, fragrances, preservatives and drying alcohols. It's been clinically proven to reduce eczema itch and redness and there are no drug side effects. It's been clinically tested, it's hypoallergenic, dermatologist recommended and accepted by the National Eczema Association. And you can get it shipped right to your door at gladskin.com and it's backed by the Gladness Guarantee. You can try it risk-free for 60 days. Love it or your money back. If you guys suffer from eczema or know someone that does, definitely try out GladSkin. I have been such a proponent of it for so long because I believe that it truly does work, and I use it myself twice a day. So be sure to check it out. Get some for yourself on GladSkin.com. And thank you to GladSkin for sponsoring this episode of Thick and Thin. Let's get back into it. So let's kick it off with the official Google definition of essentialism because I feel like we should start there because you guys are probably like, what the heck is this ism, Katie? You have another ism you're throwing at us. Like, give us the breakdown. So essentialism is a disciplined, systematic approach for determining where our highest point of contribution lies, then making execution of those things almost effortless. So kind of breaking that down, it's like identifying where our energy should go, like what tasks, what things we should be pouring our energy into and kind of making it a seamless operation, eliminating all the unnecessary things that we do and just doing the essential things. So essentially, more, 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 the concept of doing more, making more, being more is a thing of the past. Having more friends, more money, more things in your closet, just more more more, used to be just the the best thing ever. Like I just remember as a child or just like growing up wanting the most possible friends, wanting the most possible knickknacks all over my room, like the most possible clothes. I would go to the cheapest stores at the mall so I can get more stuff every time I came home from the mall to share with you guys on YouTube. Like more 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 was just such a thing and i feel like after especially after my road trip of literally packing a duffel bag for 3 weeks and really living off of less in that way but then also just as i've become an adult and have kind of valued having less more less people in my life but just more close knit and just better friends not necessarily more friends because in Taylor's song even going back to the album she's like a friend to all is a friend to none and I fully latch on to that statement because I feel that having more doesn't always mean better in terms of friends in terms of things in terms of yeah possessions being a huge thing I feel like I've been a hoarder kind of in my life I just have a hard time getting rid of things getting rid of dresses in my dress closet you guys know my 27 dresses closet I actually purged a lot of those dresses um I didn't just throw them away, don't worry, I gave them to friends or gave them to my sister and I plan on getting rid of um, some more of them. I'm going to actually find a charitable way to do that and benefit a cause, so stay tuned for that. But yeah, I have a problem with just hanging on to things that memories are attached to, but through doing some more research about essentialism, I learned that Every single yes that you say or you, you know, hanging on to something or just having something present in your life essentially is you saying no to something else. Every single yes that you say to going somewhere or doing something or getting lunch with someone It takes away from something else. It's saying no to another experience because you don't have an unlimited amount of time and resources to give. So by saying yes, you are saying no to other things. Yes to one project equals no to sleep or family time, etc. And that was crazy for me to kind of wrap my head around because I've been such a yes man in my life or yes woman in my life. Like I am known to always be be the one that's like, yes, I just have a really hard time saying no. Like, this has been a huge conversation within my management and even just my graphic design job. It's like, I can't say yes to every opportunity because, in doing so, I am saying no to sleep or to my sanity. And, you know, you need to be choosy, picky about when you say yes and what things you welcome into your life. You know, the Marie Kondo kind of mentality, does it spark joy? Like, why are you hanging on to this? Like, you know, and so in essentialism, basically not all effort is equal. Um, Some efforts and some projects will produce greater yields than others. So, you know, you have to be picky about which projects you sign on for. You know, some will be more fulfilling than others. And we need to consider, this is the kicker, we need to consider what our best quote yes will be. You know, where is our yes used best for us? You know, where will we produce the greatest yield in something that makes us happy? So it doesn't necessarily need to be like, which yes will make me more money or which yes will make me more popular. It's it's really... A personal thing as far as what is the, the best yes for you and for me I think it's using my yeses to in a quantity where it still means that I can have time to mess around creatively and dive into my art and do things that make me happy while also balancing work, like, I think those are the best yeses for me. Like, sometimes I need to say yes to mindless activities and no to things that maybe could make me some money. And that's been, like, a very adult realization for me, I feel. Um, But I I also do want to note that I don't think it will always be super obvious what the best yes is. You know, it takes trial and error, kind of trusting ourselves over what others might say is the best yes. Because sometimes, of course, you know, some people, people do see things differently for sure and experience everything differently. And after all, you know, the best yes for some people might be the worst yes for us. So I think it's about knowing yourself and figuring out where your yeses should be used. But knowing that you shouldn't have unlimited yeses and you should be picky about who you spend your time with, what you buy, what you fill your life with, what's in your space, things like that. And I think kind of in that grain, in the realm of being picky with who you spend your time with, being unavailable is important. (laughs) You need to give yourself time to concentrate, to design, to escape, and kind of find your safe space and a space where you feel stimulated to in whatever you do you know for me it's having time where I can just fuck around with creative stuff and figure out new techniques and new ways of you know hand lettering and designing things and new video editing techniques and things like that you know that's what's important for my process and so I need to say yes to more moments like that and not yeah I I just feel like my prioritization looked a little bit different throughout the past years of my life. Like I definitely just tried to prioritize everything and everyone and I was even just super antsy about like answering emails right away. Like I really felt like I couldn't let an email just sit in my inbox because someone, if someone needs something, like I need to help them right now. I can't just like say, oh, you know, I'm working on a project right now. I'm kind of in a creative groove. I can't take a second to answer this email. Like I would be like, no, I can do it all. Like (laughs) literally this like switch would turn. and I'd be like, no, I can do it. I can do everything. I can do it all. And I had to train myself kind of out of that and into the mentality that you can do anything but not everything. And that's been really hard for me to grasp. But basically kind of taking things back a little bit. Essentialism was thought up by this guy named Greg McEwen, McCown McCann I don't know how to pronounce it it's M-C-K-E-O-W-N and he has just he's really great he has given me so many learnings about this he's a whole book on it everything essentialism just like is covered by him so if you need more details about this or you're super into it read his book look him up anyway but he says before we can fix the way that we behave we have to understand how we ended up here. I love that concept. I've, d- I've dived into this concept numerous times. I always say I think childhood has a lot to do with where we end up and I think that my people pleasing or the way that I always say yes to everything really has to do with how I was kind of raised in the sense that my parents raised me to be very selfless but also being bullied and feeling like I always need to be pleasing other people because I don't want them to hate me (laughs) for various reasons. And he also says, so Greg said, it's a good idea to recognize the value of contemplation versus impulse, meaning we should take a moment to pause with our decisions, you know, even with our bosses or like really pressing things that like we feel like we need to be super instantaneous about and, you know, properly identify the essential, make a decision based not on the external pressures or time, but make it based on internal clarity of purpose, which I love clarity of purpose. Wow. Like I feel as though a lot of the things I do in life, this is hard for me because I feel like sometimes I'm just doing things without really knowing why the hell I'm doing it or... I I constantly find myself just pausing and thinking, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing on this earth. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I do these things. And I just, I act very quickly. I say yes very quickly. I neglect myself so quickly that I lose all sense of clarity. You know, sometimes I catch myself doing something and I'm like, wow, this this is my purpose. This is why I'm here. This is what makes me happy. And then just like that, I you know acting so quickly in other ways where I totally forget that and I'm the kind of person with just a lot of the things that I kind of I come to a lot of realizations and epiphanies but then unless I write it down it just literally goes in one ear out the other I never remember it ever again so that's why you'll notice just in my life I always have like like you know handwritten notes just all over the freaking place in my phone even I just have like little notes that just don't even make sense like in my notes section and if anyone else got their hands on my phone they'd be like what the hell is this girl on because this doesn't make sense (laughs) you know but if I don't write it down I won't remember it but a lot of times with you know in terms of clarity of purpose especially when I just remember at L'Oreal when I'd be like talking to my boss or like higher up people or people that I was trying to impress like I really would make very like on the fly decisions and I wouldn't really, even if I had the luxury of being able to take my time with something, I wouldn't because we're kind of cultured or we conditioned, I guess is the better word to believe that time is money and we need to be quick with everything and we need to be on our toes and really quick to answer questions. And like in school, the teacher would ask a question and, you know, there would be the certain people that would just raise their hands immediately and know the answer. And there would be those type of people. And sometimes, honestly, I will say people would raise their hand and give their opinion or their answer. And it just I'd be sitting there thinking that's just so not even right. But they had the like courage or the audacity to answer the question so quickly. And then there would be the people that stayed quiet, that knew the right answers and on the test would prove their worth because they had more time to think it through. I think those are two completely different kinds of people, which is interesting. And anyway, so some other things along the lines of essentialism, um, he suggests, so this is Greg, Greg suggests that you should learn the phrase, let me get back to you which I am so bad at that. I always need to give answers like right away and I can't be like, let me like look into this further. Like I just don't know that phrase. I don't have it in my vocabulary. So I've been trying in recent weeks after uh, learning this stuff to incorporate let me get back to you into my daily routine of answering emails and whatever I do with work stuff. But I feel like it's a hard phrase because I mean, but yeah, but honestly though, being useful, does not require an immediate answer for the most part. And I feel like people would rather you be correct than quick, you know? Um, Another note that I learned, I just took like random notes on this course that I took. You can be eager to explore new things, but still selective in what you give your time to. I'm going to say that again. You can be eager to explore new things, but still selective in what you give your time to, which I think is this is just the best thing because I feel like I am super eager to explore new things. But the mistake that I make is as soon as I hear about something or I see something, I just want to like do it immediately. And I just get my hands all over all of these things at once that I neglect other projects. Like you can learn about something, be like, that's really cool and think, Oh, you know, I'll do that in a little bit after I'm done this other thing. And you can prioritize it a little bit like that. And I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. But I think it's interesting. Um, And then another point is don't misinterpret pressure for purpose. Wow. Like that one, I really sat and thought about it because I feel like pressure has really dictated my life, like really determined my next move, really made me think I know what I'm doing or what I want when... It really hasn't been, it's been kind of like a mirage. It hasn't truly been my purpose. It's been what I think my purpose should be based on the pressure that I feel. So that, wow, like so much goodness. I definitely recommend looking into essentialism a bit more on your own, but kind of in a nutshell, it it kind of is what it sounds like. It's finding the essential energy pores like where you should be pouring in your energy the essential tasks the essential things the essential but but you know still having room to play of course which I think is important and that's just something I can't have my life not have I need time to play around and time to goof off and not really know what's what I'm doing but I think it's important to, factor those pockets of time into your schedule, into your day-to-day and make sure that you consider those things essential tasks, which I have not done. I've always thought that it's just, you know, me goofing off and it's not productive, but it is productive and I think it should be made an essential task. And from there, I should take a critical look at my life and figure out what needs to be there what doesn't need to be there you know because I feel like I do some things or I entertain some friendships or just a lot of different things I even hold on to things in my life just because I feel like I have to but I don't have to and by kind of freeing myself and having less things that I'm focusing on I can focus on those things better than if I had way more things to kind of have my hands on and I feel like in terms of friendships that 's definitely been where things have been going in my adult life i 've definitely have i have fewer friends than I did in college when I was very obsessed with making as many friends as physically possible. but I feel like my friends that I have now are just lifelong amazing friendships because I've been able to pour into them and it hasn't been like let's get drinks and have super you know superficial surface level conversations and not get into the good stuff and I think now I'm at a very good place where I feel like I have practiced essentialism in that way and kind of looked at, you know, what is what is essential here and what am I doing just because I feel like I have to and because I feel the pressure, which is kind of disguising itself as purpose. So super interesting deep stuff. This has been really what my mind has been focused on, latched onto for the past week. So I'm happy I was able to share it for you guys in kind of a discombobulated, jumbled, beautiful mess of a thing that I always do every week. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed hearing my thoughts on... Rebecca Harkness, folklore, essentialism, oversharing, just all of those beautiful, crazy things. And I will talk to you guys all in my next episode. And we'll be sharing a lot more about my move and where I am now in life. Um, I'm so excited to share more when I'm ready. So talk to you guys then. Hope you all have a great rest of your week. Bye.